Well, good morning again, church. Thank you so much uh, for gathering uh, this morning, wherever you happen to be. We thank you for bringing the church into your dining room, your your living room, sitting on your couch, whatever that looks like for you this morning. And thanks for inviting us into uh, those spaces. If I've never had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie. It is my absolute privilege to serve here at Crosspoint as one of the pastors, and it is my joy and privilege uh, to open up God's Word with you uh, this week as we start a brand new sermon series here that's called Seeking After Shalom. And what we want to do over the next few weeks is explore what does the Bible have to say about the issues of racism and corporate responsibility and what might redemption and reconciliation look like. And obviously this is uh, no small task to, um, to dive into these things. Um, I am not up here as the resident expert on these matters. My intention is never um, that, hey, three weeks from now, we will have this all like figured out and everything is good to go. But rather, what I wanna do is I want us to enter in because I believe the church is called to step into these spaces even when we have questions, even when we, we don't have everything sorted out or figured out and the reality is we are all um, people that are looking for guidance from our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I wanna do is we get into this series this morning uh, and even before we get into the text, it's just put before you a few images here in a moment, uh, because what I wanna unpack for us is before we talk about racism, before we talk about injustice and all of the, these things, we have to understand that the Bible didn't start that way. The Bible started with what the Hebrew uh, people called shalom. And the idea of shalom, it sometimes gets translated as peace. And so even for this series, when we're saying we're seeking after shalom, there's something in the human heart where we know there's a brokenness. We know things are not as God intended them to be. And we are longing for things to be put right. Even like you see just the raw emotion that is pointing, that is something that's, that's pointing to the reality of we know that there's something that is broken. And the reality is it's not just out there in the world, like it's in my heart and it's in your heart. It's in every human being's heart because ultimately there is a sin problem. And yet we are created for this peace. And so when the Hebrew people use that, it wasn't just the absence of conflict. It was a much deeper meaning than that. It was about the, the kind of webbing together of everything, that there'd be this flourishing, there'd be a wholeness, that there'd be delight. Now that's what we long for. And yet we don't have to go very far. We open up a social media app, uh, we turn on the news, we look at the newspaper, we have conversations and we realize that we are living in a world that is not experiencing the shalom. It is not as God intended it to be. When we see what happened in the past couple weeks to George Floyd, to Ahmaud Arbery, to so many others down in the, through the history of our country, we realize that there is a brokenness and the church is called to step into these spaces. And so when we see images like this, maybe not only see them, maybe you participated in, in some of the protests that were going on. The protests are not the lack of shalom. The protests rather speak to the brokenness. They speak to the, the lack of shalom. They speak to the reality that we want there to be healing. We are crying out for God to use his people to bring flourishing, to bring wholeness, to bring delight. And so 
with that backdrop of shalom, and that's how the scriptures start, and ultimately that's where the scriptures end. Like you go and read Genesis 1 and 2, and you get this picture before the fall, and then you read Revelation 21 and 22, and you know Jesus one day, he's gonna split the sky, he's gonna come back, he's gonna rule and reign, he's gonna wipe away every tear, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around the throne of God. Read Revelation 7, that's the picture. But until that time, there was work for us to do as the church, not out of guilt, but rather motivated by the gospel that we've been made this new people. There's this new humanity because of the gospel. And so two images I wanna put before you that have been helpful for me in even thinking through this. One comes from um, a guy named David Bailey who runs a nonprofit, this organization called Erebon, which is this, means this word of like a, a foretaste of what's to come. This longing for when Jesus does come back. And he said, one of the ways to understand this, to understand our cultural moment is an image that he puts forth of an iceberg. And I think this is something that is a helpful thing for us to keep in mind, not only this morning, not only in the weeks ahead, but really until there is actual healing that takes place. And what he speaks to is this, that what we're experiencing right now is sort of the tip of the iceberg, but there are, there's hundreds of years of pain and of history of injustice that is below the surface. And we just happen to see things on the news right now, and particularly if you are in the majority culture, if your skin happens to look a bit more like mine right now, realize that we can tend to think of these moments as like, oh, why did this flare up or what's going on? When in reality, there's all this stuff beneath the surface. Another image, getting at the same point, but just another way to think about it. It's from Dr. Eric Mason, pastor, author, theologian up in Philadelphia. It's part of our church planning network. He wrote a helpful book called Woke Church. And in it, in the opening chapter, he describes, again, another image getting at this. And he says, a way for us to think about this is a volcano. And when there is a volcano, you know that sometimes it erupts and you see the lava spilling out. But there's always this boiling. There's always this stuff that's happening beneath the surface. And so we find ourselves living in a moment where the Corruption has happened, but it doesn't mean that there wasn't pain and brokenness just below the surface. And sometimes if we are in a spot of a majority culture, we can lose sight of that. And I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters who are people of color who help remind us, help us see. I've had conversations with folks over the past few weeks. You are helping me see what is beneath the surface and what has been the pain and where we as the church, like how can we step in? And again, I don't say that as the one who's got this figured out just because I'm reading some books and having some conversations and taking an online class right now to learn about racism and reconciliation and all of this. I think those are all good and helpful things. But I'm not naive enough to think that, well, I'll just preach a couple of sermons and this will be over. We're talking about hundreds of years of problems and of pain and of brokenness. And so one last image I want to put before you before we get into our text then this morning is if we think about this shalom, seeking after shalom, the reality is it's like maybe picture a piece of fabric or something that's been woven together and then a tear, it begins to rip apart. And the space for us as the church to step into is to seek to reweave the shalom, to reweave the places that have been torn apart, to mend, to seek to bring healing, to seek to bring a wholeness and a flourishing. And I think our posture in this, I would say, is kind of twofold. I put before you that on the one hand, there has to be a very pastoral response in this. Now, if you don't think of yourself as a pastor, if you're a Christian and you may not have the title of pastor, you don't work for a church, 
This doesn't mean like you're off the hook on that. It's for all of us to walk in a way of a pastoral heart towards people, particularly towards those persons of color, to the black community, to our brothers and sisters, both in the church and outside of the church. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He reminds us of this. He says, we're a body. If, and if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. May I put before you that part of our calling is to enter in because if we're a body, there is a part that is hurting right now. And how dare we put it in a category of like, well, they just sort of like it's stubbing your toe. It goes well beyond that. This is a pain that has been inflicted. There is something, there's trauma that has happened and our calling as the, the church is to step in and to care for one another. So there's a pastoral response, but I'd also put before you that there is a prophetic response. And prophetic in the scriptures doesn't mean this prediction of the, the future, but rather that it would call out injustice from a place of humility. We will talk about that in a moment, but the church would actually speak up, that the church might use its voice that isn't our voice in our sin, but rather we would open up the scriptures and we say, the God of the universe has created things to be differently. We are not experiencing the shalom that he wants us to experience and that we would prophetically speak out and we would call it evil when it's evil that we must recapture our voice. The Christian martyr, the theologian, lived in the time of the Nazi regime, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, spoke of it this way, in a prophetic way. He said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And so church, may we walk in a pastoral way. May we reclaim our prophetic voice that we would step into these spaces. And so we're gonna look at a few scriptures. Our normal pattern is to pick a book of the Bible and we journey through. This series is gonna be a little bit different. It'll always be expository, working through passages of scripture, but we are gonna jump around a little bit. And so let me encourage you in this way to make use for one, go to cpwp.life and swipe over till you see a card that says message notes. And there you'll find the text, any quotes, things that I am putting on the, on the screen this morning. because so I want you to be able to follow along. And in this as well, I, I need prayer right now. We need prayer. We need to ask the Holy Spirit, to teach us, to guide us, to convict us of sin, to comfort us with the gospel. So I'm gonna put a short prayer on the screen. And if you feel comfortable, would you, wherever you happen to be, just pause for a moment. Maybe you're getting breakfast together. Maybe you're trying to keep the kids corralled. Maybe you're a little bit distracted with a phone or whatever, but just let's focus for a moment. And let's pray this prayer together. Please join me now. Glorious God, Give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. Amen. So church, as we get into this, the first thing I wanna do, I wanna look this morning, this sermon in many ways is sort of an introduction. It's about our posture. Um, we are gonna get more specific as we get into week two, as we look at uh, responsibility, both on a personal, but also a corporate moral responsibility. We'll get in that next week. And then we wanna look in the last week, like what practically might we be able to do to seek to bring about reconciliation? What might we as the church, what, what could that look like? But this morning is really an opportunity for us to kind of just step back 
to make sure we're thinking rightly about these things, to go to the scriptures and have the scriptures orient us to what God's good design is and what God's intentions are and what God would want us to do as the church, not to earn the affection of God, not to somehow just sort of like, all right, I feel a little guilty right now, so I gotta do some things, but rather, no, we know that we are loved by God. We are sons and daughters of the King, that we've been reconciled to one another, even if we don't always experience that, all right? And so there's this invitation. I wanna look at three calls this morning, the call to awaken, the call to justice, and the call to look. And so the first one, the call to awaken, there's a call for us as the church. Look with me, go to Ephesians chapter five. Again, it's on the message notes at cpwp.life. And I wanna read the first, I wanna read verses eight to 14. The apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church. Um, in fact, he's reminded them over and over again. I mean, just read through Ephesians. Take some time maybe this week to just read it from start to finish. And you read through the six chapters that you have here. Paul has been just faithfully proclaiming who we are in Christ. Even at the beginning of chapter five, it says this, therefore, well, the therefore is now in light of who you are, in light of this new humanity, in light of everything, he says, be imitators of God as what? As beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So everything that Paul is gonna say in these ensuing verses are in light of that. You belong to God. If you're a follower of Christ, You've been rescued. You've experienced redemption. You've experienced freedom because Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us, that he pursued us, that he didn't sit on the sideline, that he entered into the pain and the brokenness. And so there's a call here for the church to come awake, to come alive. So Paul's dealing with particular issues that would have been going on in that church. And the general principle here is that we are called, we're to be reminded of the light that we are because of the gospel and that our call to awaken, our call to call out, to expose what is evil, what is sinful, what is broken. So let me read these verses. We'll pick it up in verse eight. It says this. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. That is shalom. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Verse 11, so take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So let's look at these verses for a few moments here. Paul, right away, he starts out and he says, I just, I want, a, I want you guys to know your identity. He doesn't even say you were in darkness and now you are in light, but rather look at the language here. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The calling us here, the reminder is that you were once dead and now you've been made alive. There was death and now there's resurrection. That's the kind of people we are. And in light of that, then the apostle Paul says this, walk as children of the light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So the calling is in obedience. What we're gonna see over and over again is that this issue of racism and of injustice, it is a gospel issue. This is not a social gospel. We're gonna see over and over again that one of the implications of us being rescued and saved is that we are called to reweave the places that have been torn apart. We are to enter in. 
And so it says, walk as children of the light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If we were to drop down, I'll read to you verse 15. Paul picks up on this theme. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Don't we feel that right now? That there's an evil, there's a brokenness out in the world. Things are not as God intended them to be. And so we must walk with wisdom. It says, discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I, again, I'm not up here because I have perfectly discerned how the next step should be, what we should do as a church, what I'm called to, what you're called to. But I do know this, there is an evil that is out there. And anytime we treat our brothers and sisters as less than they were created to be, seeing them not as the image bearers that they are, full of worth and value and dignity, to be loved, to be pursued, we are engaging in that evil. So we need to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. To discern, though, this is a huge thing for us. You can't discern in a place of arrogance. Like, I want us to be an active church. I want there to be, um, I want us to, to engage in, in ways that there would be a right and true and beautiful activism that is not rooted in arrogance. If we're going to discern, it's going to take a humility. It's going to take us saying, I don't know what to do. It's going to be asking questions. It's going to be humbling ourselves. If you look at just what we're called to do, what is pleasing to the Lord? Well, one of the great places to get an answer to that question is Micah 6, 8. Many of you may know these words. He has told you, oh man. So you wanna know what the will of the Lord is? Here's part of it. What is good? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness or to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It has been said that in order for that verse to come to fruition, one might think of it and work through it backwards, meaning that we would walk humbly with our God. I'm a broken, sinful man that is in need of the constant grace of Jesus Christ. I am no better than anybody else, and neither are you. Regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of the sins that have been done to you or the ways you have sinned against other people, the reality is we are all in need of God's grace. There should be something that humbles us, but as the gospel humbles us, It reminds us of the loving kindness of our God, of the way that we've been extended mercy. So then what in turn do we want to do? Not to earn the affections of God, but because we've been so graciously loved that we in turn would extend a loving kindness that we would move towards people. And when that happens, I think the order here from humility to mercy and kindness, it results in justice. It results in a right ordering. The idea of justice here is giving people the rights, what they deserve. George Floyd deserved to live. Ahmaud Arbery deserved to live. So many others deserved to live, not have their life taken from them. They were given, like they, they, they had rights. And the evil of this world can take those things away. So our calling as a church is to walk in humility. And church, I'm praying that in all of this, that even in our desire to want to set things right, that we would also have a humble posture. That before we would, we would walk this line well of using our voice, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, yes and amen, let's not be silent. Let's figure out ways to use our voice. Sometimes that's gonna be via social media. Sometimes that's gonna be in conversation. Sometimes that's just gonna be sitting with somebody that is suffering 
and just saying, I am so sorry. And then we would weep with those who weep. We wouldn't even try and solve it or fix it with our words, but rather we would listen. But it's gonna take a posture of humility. So ask yourself even before you engage in a conversation, before you fire off something on Facebook or a tweet or whatever it happens to be, am I operating in a posture of humility? Or am I saying, ooh, I've been awakened and here I am and I've learned this and grown and as if you just magically woke up one day and you were in a spot to understand these things. What would it look like for us as the church to be compassionate towards those who are coming awake to this reality but may not have heard what you've heard or had the experiences you've had or read the books that you've read or had some of those experiences to be patient, for us to put on display as a church a humility. I believe that is one of the key elements in all of this. And then Paul says this, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He would go on and say, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. And so that idea of exposure is seeing what is wrong and what is broken, even when others don't see it. Eric Mason speaks of it this way in his book, seeing what others don't see and calling it out. When you see evil, so it's not to say, don't use your voice, but rather in a place of humility to say, by God's grace, I actually have been given some eyes to see what is happening. And so I'm going to use the resources that God has given me, knowing that I can't do this on my own, but that we would step in collectively as the church to expose, to say that's not right. And then Paul concludes and he says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. I believe the more we study the history of our country, I'm reading through a book right now called The Color of Compromise. And Jamar Tisby, I believe is his name is, he, he begins to lay out going back to pre-revolution days and making his way kind of through the history of America. There have been so many opportunities for the church to rise up, to awaken. And rather than doing that, we have looked the other way. And that's not in every case. The church has a glorious history in many, many ways of stepping in. When you think of William Wilberforce, you think of folks that have worked to bring uh, freedom, to get rid, to be, that were abolitionists and all of that. And yet the tragic history of people that I quote often to you when we look at what is regarded as maybe one of the greatest theologians that America has ever produced in Jonathan Edwards, and we realize he also owned slaves. How do we reconcile those things? There is a brokenness that is there. And so there's a calling for us as a church to awaken, to rise up. I don't know if you heard this story or not. This has been making its way around uh, various news cycles. There's a guy by the name of Daniel Thorson. I'll put his picture up here in a moment. Uh, here's what's really fascinating about Daniel Thorson, but can kind of be used, I think, as an object lesson for what I hope doesn't characterize us as a church. So in early March, Daniel Thorson uh, is a practicing uh, Buddhist, and he decided he was going to take this pilgrimage into the woods of Vermont. And so for 75 days, he lived in this cabin. So you see that picture there? All right, that's, that's him for 75 days. No internet, no phone, no interaction, complete silence, completely cut off. Now, that was early March. On May 23rd, he ended his 75-day, two-and-a-half-month silent retreat, and within about an hour, all right, of kind of getting back to civilization, 
He's a podcaster. He's a technology philosopher, things like, like that. He jumped back on Twitter and basically said, hey, did I miss anything? Now, just think for a moment. I mean, how crazy is that? Like the entire country like went into this COVID quarantine, everything shut down. That dude was living in the woods, had no idea that it was happening. Comes back and it's just like, wait, what? Like what in the world has transpired? Now we can sort of laugh at that and we can think, oh my goodness, hey, that, that worked out well for him maybe. I, I don't know how you would have, if you would have enjoyed that or not. But I tell you that story because I think it's a picture of, for us particularly who are in the majority culture, that I'm fearful for me that I might just be living life oblivious to the pain and that every once in a while I kind of pop my head up and be like, hey, did I miss anything? Rather than seeing the tragic history that has unfolded generation upon generation. I don't want to be the type of person that is just so disconnected from the pain of my brothers and sisters that are people of color from the black community. But I have to admit, and we'll explore this more next week, that there are ways I am disconnected. There are ways that I'm shielded from, from pain. There are ways because of just who I am in the world, that things that I never earned just simply because of the color of my skin. There are some things that I haven't had to deal with. I don't want us as a church to live the equivalent of Daniel Thorson just away from everything, wondering, oh, hey, did I miss anything? What would it look like for us to enter in? So there's a call to awaken. There's also a call to justice. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 58. We won't have time to, I'm more just gonna read this. But one of the things we see over and over again in the scriptures is God's heart for the marginalized, God's heart for those on the underside of power, God's heart for his church, for his people to engage. So look with me at these first 12 verses. I just wanna comment on a couple of things. But there's, this is the prophetic. I mean, over and over again, God sends prophets to call out to the people, to wake them up from their slumber, to say, don't act like what you've been, been doing, saying like you've, you've been asleep to the realities of injustice. And so in Isaiah 58, here's what's so interesting. Look with me at the first couple of verses. It says, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. So God's telling Isaiah to do this. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. So you read that and immediately you're like, oh, Isaiah's gonna let them have it. I'm like, I wonder what's coming next. Like, what is God so cranked up about? Like, what are their big sins? And then we get to verse two and we look at this and we're like, oh, this, this was their big sins? Look how it's described in verse two because most of us, if we were looking for a church, to connect with, we would look at verse two and be like, oh, hey, I think I might wanna connect with that community. But why does the Lord speak of it as their transgressions? Verse two, yet they seek me daily. This is how the people, this is how this body of people is described. And they delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me of righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. It's like, what's the problem with this? Why have we fasted and you see it not, they say? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. We're beginning to get some understanding here. 
that Isaiah has been commissioned and tasked with calling out to the people to say, to sound the trumpet, to come awake, to come alive to God's heart for justice and to say, you're engaged in all sorts of religious practices. You're gathering together. You're offering your feasts. You're offering your, your sacrifices. You're engaging even something like a fast, but you're missing the heart of God. How is it for us as a church? In what ways am I living like a man on a 75-day silent retreat thinking I'm doing all the right things? I'm engaged in all the spiritual activities, but have I missed the heart of God? Verse four, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? He's calling out the religious behavior. This is what the Lord wants. Look at the turn that takes place in verse six. Is not the, this the fast that I choose? You wanna know what pleases the Lord? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? And the language there of your own flesh is not speaking just of your own body, but of your fellow brothers and sisters, your own flesh is all of humankind, people as fellow image bearers. Then, and here's the promises, when we begin to take seriously God's call to justice. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. You know what he's promising? That there is a joy that we are lacking because we are consumed by self. And the prophetic word for the church, for the people of God, is God desires that you would have the most joy possible. And the joy comes when we enter into the pain, when we enter into the brokenness, when we come alongside those who have no voice. And we say we stand with them. These are fellow image bearers. Even if they're not brothers and sisters in Christ, they have worth, value, and dignity. Joy comes as we enter in. As we become, as we pray to God to work, he also sends us out, in essence, to live out the answers to those prayers because he works through us. So if you pour yourself out for the hungry, verse 10, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in darkness and your gloom be as noonday. You know how bright it is at noonday? Think about Florida and bright, like, that's what your gloom is gonna be like. It's gone. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach the restorer of streets to dwell in. Church, what if in this moment, not because we have the strength to do it on our own, but what if we cried out to God? And what if we figured out ways to engage? 
And what if the history books hundreds of years from now would look back and say there was a movement of God that happened and that verse 12 here became a description of the land in which we inhabit, that the ancient ruin shall be rebuilt. We're not trying to get back to some glorious epic age that was America. It's saying there's ruins. They shall be rebuilt. Raise up the foundations of many generations to be called the repairer of the breach. What if the church was known for this? The restorer of streets to dwell in. Streets that are safe for people of any color to go on a jog on. Streets that were safe to walk at night. Streets that were safe to wear a hoodie. Streets that were safe for anybody. Like, what might that look like for us as the church? And again, I don't have the answers to that. But I can't ignore what God says. I mean, Jesus is in the line of the prophets. This is why he comes in a similar theme. Look at these words. Look at the harshness, but it's said in love to the Pharisees, to the scribe, to the religious elite of the culture. And lest you think for a moment, oh, I can't, you know, like I'm glad I'm not those people. I'm afraid I am that person so often. And Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew 23 and there's this series of woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Well, what are those? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. Sounds like Micah 6, 8 all over again. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So Jesus says, you're engaged in all sorts of religious activity. And I'm not even anti that. You're so dialed in to tithing that you would take the smallest of herbs and you would make sure that the Lord got his 10% of the mint, all right? Great, you shouldn't have neglected that. Pay attention to those things. But there are weightier matters. There are matters of justice and of mercy and of faithfulness, of walking humbly with our God, of engaging in loving kindness, of calling out injustice when we see it. And he says, when we miss that, The imagery here that Jesus is borrowing is those religious elites who oftentimes, all right, the kind of the elite of culture, one of the things they would enjoy doing is having a good glass of wine. And they had an actual, like this whole process that they would go because of the bugs that were in the area, the gnats that would circle around in the arid and the heat there, they would have this whole process to make sure not a tiny little bug polluted their wine. They are focused on that. And Jesus uses this ridiculous imagery that's meant to just sort of be jarring because the largest animal they would have known was a camel. And he's like, oh great, you strain out the gnat and you don't realize you're swallowing this. You're literally trying to swallow a gigantic camel. Like how much more do I have to tell you? We've missed it, is what Jesus is saying. And I want to think about the scribes and the Pharisees and think, oh gosh, I'm so thankful I'm not like them. And yet in ways that my heart hasn't even fully come to grips with, because the heart is deceitful, like who can understand it? The prophet Jeremiah would tell us. There are ways that I am engaged in religious behavior and activity and outward appearance. How have I neglected justice? In both sins of commission and omission, like what would it look like to ask the Lord, examine my heart and show me. Not to beat us down, not to make us feel guilty. I can't change the color of my skin. The calling isn't for me to feel guilty as a white man, but the calling is to say, when we see injustice, to expose it, to call it out. And when other people don't see it with patience and humility, though to also help them 
see it. I'll close with this. There's a call to awaken. There's a call to justice. As we think about our posture here, the last thing I want to put before you is that there's a call to look. In many ways, we've been talking about these themes when we are awakened to the reality, when there's exposure, when we expose things, when we see things. I want to look at a couple of verses that are kind of obscure verses at the end of the great book of Romans. But let me give you the setup for this. I literally remember where I was on the 417, all right? Driving on this particular tollway. I was driving to go meet up with my family that was at a swim meet a couple of years ago. And I was driving and I had just gotten south of the Lake Nona area and I was coming toward, getting closer to where the 417 meets with I-4 down near the attractions, all right? Remember those things that existed pre-COVID, right? Like, and so driving toward that place, and I had turned on a, a podcast. It was this 18-minute teaching by an author that I really have appreciated his works over the year named Andy Crouch. And in it, he begins to unpack all these sort of cultural movements that happen. I don't have time. Uh, I'll try and post it online so you can go watch. I don't have time to unpack all of this. But he said, there's this tendency in American culture. He said, amidst great revolutions, things that we are so thankful for from industrial revolutions and technology revolutions and all of this and information revolutions, all right? all what can be good things. There can be a tendency though to get so caught up in the pragmatics that we end up neglecting the personhood of people instead and embrace power and pragmatics and just convenience. And he said, what that results in is a terrible isolation and a terrible loneliness that people who come, he said, to visit him from other countries time and time again, when he asked them, what do you see about my culture? What do you see about America that I don't see? One Time and time again, one after the other, they say there's a loneliness that exists. And he begins to attribute it to this fact that, that we no longer, or I shouldn't say not in a blanket statement, but we struggle sometimes to see the personhood, to see the worth and value of the people that are right in front of us, the people that we interact with, the way C.S. Lewis said, there's no mere mortals. I mean, these people are amazing. Like, do we actually see that? And we've neglected to actually look and see people. But he said, here's the encouragement. This story is played out. The empire that is Rome. There were many revolutions that paralleled things that we experienced. And obviously they didn't have the technological advances, but they were advanced for their time. And what began to be celebrated in that culture was not so much personhood, but it was power. And the person who had the power was the head of the family. It was the man. And the women were regarded just as something to be used. And sometimes a man would have multiple wives or different women that he would be with. And they were sort of discarded. But even further down sort of this caste system, further down the line, those that had the least value, that had the least personhood in the Roman culture were those that were slaves. And what would happen is oftentimes a slave would belong to a particular household and that slave would end up having kids. And you think about if you're a parent, like the anguish in a good way you went through to come up with the name for your kid and you debated it, maybe even changed it after they were born, right? Like we wanna get this right. But for the people where their personhood wasn't valued, where it wasn't seen, where they were just a commodity to be used, to be discarded, to help somebody experience more, more power and privilege in the world, when that child was born, here, here became the common practice. No name was given, just a number. That's the first one, we'll call that one. That's the second kid, we'll call that two. That's the third one, we'll call that three. Now the fourth one, we'll call that four. And you see how it goes. Now, 
Here's what Crouch and that teaching brought to light, that literally, as I was driving the 417, I looked like a crazy person. Not because I was mad at traffic, but because he started to unpack what I'm gonna share with you here, and it did something in me. Like, I was driving down the road, and I'm like, literally yelling by myself in the car, just so, like, sort of overjoyed by the, by the beauty and wonder that is the gospel, that I think there were tears, and there was yelling, and there was amening, all right? Like, I was just, like, crazy charismatic as I was going down the, the 417, all right? At least crazy charismatic for me, right? And so, that's what happened. Why? Because in Romans 16, I mean, Romans is regarded as probably like the deepest theological book that we have in all of the scriptures. And Paul's just been laying out all this stuff. I mean, just the complexity and the beauty and all of this. And then you get to what you would think maybe be the crescendo. In chapter 16, it's just a whole bunch of greetings. It literally is the apostle Paul just sort of, you know, he's kind of signing off here. And so you read through it. Maybe you expected there to be some big dramatic sort of ending, you know? And he's like, well, I commend you to our sister Phoebe and greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers and greet Andronicus and Junia. And he begins to lay out. But from a sociological perspective, here's what's so profound. People of various socioeconomic backgrounds, people of different races from different countries, different cultures, are here doing the ministry with Paul, engaged in the work in a culture that discarded women. A lot of women are listed here. In a culture that didn't, that only valued the, the men, that's not what's happening here. And in a culture that wouldn't even give certain people a name, look with me at verses 22 to 23. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. I, Tertius. You know what Tertius means? Three. A slave. Somebody who didn't have any personhood according to the culture is now the scribe writing down the thoughts of the Apostle Paul that we know as the book of Romans. And as Paul is laying this out and he's greeting people, there must come this moment where he would look at Tertius and say, Tertius, you've been dictating all this. You've been writing all of this down. Tertius, my brother in the Lord, the culture knows you as nothing more than a number, but I see your worth, your value, your dignity, and I see you now and I say, Will you greet those? And what does Tertius do? This ancient book that we had for a couple thousand years ago that Christians down through the ages study, Tertius contributes and who wrote this letter, greets you in the Lord. And Gaius, who is host to me in the whole church, greets you, which means that the whole church is there. This guy's got some money. He's like the largest tither in the church and he's there with the slave the one who was formerly a slave. And there's Erastus, the city treasurer, a guy who has power and influence. And guess who he is next to? Our brother Quartus greets you as well. Number four. Number three and number four. Imagine how countercultural this was that the apostle Paul in the Christian church, they didn't see their story of the way that they were overlooked. They didn't, they didn't buy into that, but rather they saw them as fellow image bearers. 
And they were invited to participate in God's redemptive work. And they were celebrated as brothers in Christ because the apostle Paul knew that he was a sinner saved by grace. He didn't earn anything from God. And regardless of his background or his pedigree or what, it didn't mean a thing. We all belong to Jesus Christ. And so church, may we see people. May we see like the apostle Paul saw. He was seen by the Lord and now he can see Tertius and he can see Quartus and he can see the people that he's with. The author Kurt Thompson said this in his book, Soul of Shame. We all are born into the world looking for someone who is looking for us. Church, in this moment, let's look for people. Let's see their worth and their value and their dignity. And then let's remind them as we remind ourselves that the God of the universe, when we were looking for someone to look for us, he came and he sees you and he names you. He calls you a son. He calls you a daughter. You are not named by your past or the shame that you carry. You're not named by the sin that has been done to you or the sin that you've committed against other people. You have been pursued. You have been loved. You have been seen. Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Church, the God of the universe looks for us. And because that has happened, we now get the great privilege and opportunity for other people.